verses 13 through 19. And let's pray for illumination and then we'll read this. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you don't leave us as orphans. We thank you that you give us illumination, that you strengthen us, that you comfort us. And that you who wrote these very words that we're to read today and open up, we thank you, oh Holy Spirit, that um, you come and, and open the eyes of your people. And we pray for that. We pray for those who are not your people, that you would open their eyes today as well. We know that the, the, the Holy Spirit, oh God, is, is like the wind and it blows wherever it wishes. And so we pray in your, in your mercy and in your providence that today the Holy Spirit would blow upon us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what we're seeing here, you remember last week we're talking about how the scene was Christ on an, on an ocean, or Christ at the sea actually, and everybody's around Christ including demoniacs, people who need healing, and they're walking from up to 150 miles away to get there and it's a very, it's a scene of pandemonium, of chaos it was probably, it was no doubt noisy um, the demon possessed are shouting and at the same time though here's what you have, you always have Christ who has a sea of followers, but then you have Christ who has a, a special group of followers who are not just there for the, for the miracles and not just there to see what happens, but they're actually following him because they, they truly do love Christ and they want, to, they want to be with Christ. Here what you see though is this, okay, so we've already seen Christ call five people out and call them to follow him. That was um, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi. And so we've already had them mentioned, but look in verse 13. So the first thing that you see is Christ, he went up on the mountain. Now you might think as you're reading this, you're like, okay, you know, I mean, Christ goes up on the mountain next. But if you stop right here and you think about all the different places in the scriptures where it talks about a mountain, and what you're going to find is this, okay, wherever there's mention of someone going to a mountain, it's usually a sign that something significant is about to happen. And you see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, you have the Sermon on the Mount, you have the Transfiguration, you have the calling of the disciples. In the Old Testament, you have um, Moses going up on Mount Sinai to receive the commandments from God. And in another place in the New Testament, it says that Moses received those commandments from the angel of God. Now think about this. We've talked about this in the Old Testament, how anytime you see the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament, it's the angel of Yahweh, but it's always, it's usually a Christophany. It's a, it's a mention of Christ appearing in the flesh to somebody um, in the Old Testament. So when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the New Testament tells us he receives those from the angel of God. He's receiving those commandments from none other than this person right here, Jesus Christ. 
Before he takes on flesh, he's there, he exists, and he's the one who gives the commandments to Moses. But you're seeing this, so even in the Old Testament, remember, uh, Abraham takes his son Isaac, whom he loves, his beloved son, up the mountain to sacrifice his son. So anytime you see this idea of a mountain in Scripture, it's it's usually always significant. I can't think of a single place where where it's not significant. Um, Even the mountain where God hands out blessings and curses, those are on a mountain. So anytime you see a mountain in Scripture, there's something significant to that. If you have, in fact, and what's significant about today is that if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19, because this is going to be very relevant. We're looking at what Christ is doing here, who he's calling, why he's calling them. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, where else do you see those words? You see them in the New Testament. You see them spoken by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You see Peter saying that the church, we are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And then you also see John the disciple. So two of the guys who are on the mountain right now with Jesus Christ, they are later on when they're writing the letters that we have in the New Testament, they are later on going to describe the church, the people of God as being a kingdom of priests. Now, why is that significant? Think about what Christ is doing. So on the mountain, that is when God, back in in Exodus, what we just read, that is God constituting Israel as a nation. How many tribes were in Israel? How many tribes of Israel? There were 12. So when you're looking at what Christ is doing here in Mark chapter 3, okay, there is so much going on here that's not necessarily on the surface, but it's most definitely um, corresponding with everything else in Scripture. You're seeing Christ go up on a mountain, and then look what he does. He summons those whom he himself wanted. He summons them, and it's really more emphatic than that. You're talking here about sovereign election. Because, um, you know, and, and this is, you can look at this in two ways, okay? So number one, you can look at this as election in general. So you look at, let's say, Abraham in the Old Testament. You have Abraham, he's a pagan, he's worshiping false gods, he's doing everything in this land of Ur. And God comes to Abraham and calls him out of Ur to come and follow him. He doesn't call Bob, he doesn't call Jack, he doesn't call so-and-so. He calls Abraham to come and follow him. Not because Abraham is a good guy or righteous. Abraham is an idol worshiper. It's God's sovereign grace that goes and calls out Abraham and calls him to follow him. Same thing in the New Testament. You have it all over the place. You have Jesus Christ saying in John chapter 6, I do want to read this. This is 37 through 40. Jesus Christ tells us, John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. But it begins because the father gives the son a certain people. 
And we see it in other places throughout the scriptures. Okay, so you can look at election here, divine election from a general from a general perspective and see it on a grand scale when you're talking about salvation in general. But you can also see this on a particular level as far as uh, just the, the, the everyday vocations or the callings that you and I have in our life. So here we see this as a special call for these disciples. Now we will look at this, um, and Dan Sison's going to like this because I have a three-pointer. Um, coming up. But here's the thing, okay? Before we get there, we're going to see that there's a lot of this for every one of us, okay? So although we're not apostles, there's still something here for all of us as far as we can. Christ calls us to something that's very much in line with what he calls these guys to. But at the same time, we have to realize that this is also something that is special and unique for these apostles, Just like you have a special vocation or a unique calling that God himself has given you to do. And no one else in a sense, right? You might have co-workers, you might have other people doing what you do. But in the sense of you as one of God's children, whether you're a female or a male, God has come and he has specifically called you to a certain vocation, a certain ministry, a certain work. Whether you're a plumber, whether you are, uh, you operate a scissor lift, whether you're on the dairy, whether you're at UPS, whether you're a minister, whether you're a politician, whatever it is, God has called you to that sphere. And no one duty or job or vocation is necessarily more important than another one. That was the beauty of the Reformation when they came in and said, there's no, there's no hierarchy right here of, of different classes of people and what they do. Because we're all, again, we're all kingdom, we're all, we're all called to be priests. It doesn't mean that there, you know, there's no order and everyone can just do what they want to. But it's to say that God has called us all to work in certain spheres. And as we're working in those, those spheres, think about what priests do. Priests are called to minister the word to others, especially um, as it regards to the things of God. So you're working wherever you are, wheat fields, wherever you are. You know that you are ministering the word of God to the people around you. That is your, that's your job. That's what God has called you to that place of work for. That's why every one of us, mothers at home, people at work, wherever you work, whatever you're doing, he's called us to be ministers of the gospel, not with the capital M necessarily, but in the sense of he's called you as one of his people to go and minister the gospel to those around you for the sake of his glory. So he's called you to that. And that, again, is is part of God's divine prerogative when he calls you to that. He in his wisdom has decided, hey, you do this, you do that, you do that. Doesn't mean you can't ever change. Sometimes God will call you to something else, yes. But it does mean that be at peace, be content, right? Because God's called you to this. Now, look at exactly what's going on here with these guys, okay? So in verse 14, it says, he appointed 12. He appointed 12. And you know what the word in the Greek is? It's not a point. It's he made 12. It's the same word that you would see in Genesis 1-1 if you're looking at the Greek translation of, the, of Genesis 1-1. It's the same word that's used for when in the beginning God created or God made the heavens and the earth. It's the same word, which is very significant. Why? Because what is Christ doing here? He's remaking something. If you look at what happened to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel at this point, they've been decimated. Where are they? They have been decimated. They have gone through periods of exile. They've gone through periods of destruction. Um, They themselves right now are under the boot of Rome. At this point, there's only two and a half tribes left. Of all the 12 tribes, there's only two and a half left. So Christ is coming and Christ is remaking something. He's bringing into existence something. And what he's bringing into existence... Now think about this, okay? If you look at um, Galatians 6, verse 16. Galatians 6, verse 16. There's a very... 
important phrase that, that Paul uses in Galatians. At the end of Galatians, chapter 6, he says this thing. And let's start in verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so, so that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, you're going around and you're saying, hey, you know, I come from Abraham. Abraham is my father. Uh, ethnically, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I come from Abraham and, um, you know, we, we celebrate Hanukkah. We do everything and all these things, and therefore I have this right standing with the Lord. Paul says, no, you don't, not necessarily. On the other hand, you have another guy, let's say he's a Gentile or a pagan, he's going around, he's saying, you know what, I don't, I don't get drunk, I don't kick my dog, I love everybody around me, I'm always nice to my grandma, I mow my neighbor's yard, all these things, therefore I'm right with God. Paul says, no, you're not. It's not about your works, it's not about your performance, it's not about your genealogy, it's not what matters, Paul tells us right here, is what matters is whether or not you've been made a new creation, whether you've been born again. That's all that counts. That's all that matters. If you've been born again, we already saw in this book in Galatians 3, where it talks about, um, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're black or white or yellow or red or you're from China or Denver, Colorado, doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. If you're in Christ, now look what he says here. This is the thing I wanted to look at. Verse 16, and those who will walk by this rule, by what rule? The new creation rule. The born again rule. Those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. So he's calling this community the Israel of God. What community? The people that believe in Abraham. Or excuse me, the people that believe in Christ who are descendants of Abraham spiritually. That's the community. That's the truth. That's the, that's the Israel. Okay, so what he's saying here is what Christ is doing here is he's reconstituting something that had fallen to pieces, that has been that is in shambles by the time he's by the time Christ is up here. And he's remaking. Now think about this idea of 12 here. Okay, is this a random, arbitrary number? We've already said it's not, because we know that there's 12 tribes in Israel. But to demonstrate this, think about who these 12 are. In fact, the very last one, if you look at Mark. If you go down to Mark chapter 3 and you look at the very bottom there of the list, you have very last on the list, and there's a reason Judas is always last. goes without saying, right? He's the one that betrayed the Lord. But what happens to Judas? By the time you get to the book of Acts, Judas is dead. But notice the disciples in the book of Acts, they're not like, you know what, we got 11, let's go with it. We're good with 11. We don't need 12. No, what they do is they, 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 they basically, they do draw lots. They, they have two guys come forward and then they draw lots. Why? Because they know they need 12. There's something symbolical about 12. There's something necessary about the number 12. What's necessary is that it's, it's Israel. The reconstitution of Israel. That's why they're doing this. Okay. Um, now look at this next part though. Why does Jesus appoint the 12? And this is the three pointer. Okay. So number one, he appoints them. Number one, to be with him. Number two, to speak about him or to preach him. And number three, to cast out demons or to live for him. Okay. So there's your three points. Number one, to be with him. Number two, to speak about him. And number three, to cast out demons. Now, if you're looking at us, and this is the application for us, because there really is every one of these points, every Christian is called to do every one of these points in a sense. Okay. So number one, look at this. Okay. This is um, verse 14 and he appointed 12 so that they could be with him. Now, why is that important? Think about where these guys are. And this is going to be very important in a minute. 
But these, the disciples at this point, they don't know a lot. None of these guys are scholars. They're not coming from the Sanhedrin. They haven't spent their lives studying this stuff necessarily. They've been exposed to it, no doubt, by just being virtue, by, by, uh, in virtue of being around the synagogue. But the, these guys, you know, from we've talked about this from the world's perspective, these are not the, 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 the cream of the crop necessarily. And yet Christ is calling them to him so that they learn from him. That's the main point. That's what a disciple is. The word disciple means a learner. It means you're learning something. You're, 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 you're studying, not just studying under this person, but in this case, you're studying the person himself. And we're seeing the importance of this because if you turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, what you see is after Christ is raised from the dead, after Christ is ascended, after he ascends, what happens is that Peter and John, the guys, two of the guys who are on this mound right now, okay, Peter and John are arrested. Why are they arrested? For preaching Christ. And when they're arrested, they bring these guys in and they can't figure it out. These guys that are in charge of the, uh, the, the priests and the Sadducees, they can't figure out, okay, so these guys are out here preaching, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening. People are being converted. There's, there's things happening. We've seen just today in the reading that, that Logan read, we've seen they're doing miracles. They're doing everything Christ was doing on earth. Now they're doing it. And they're trying to figure out, now how is this possible? Who are these guys? They're fishermen. They're, look what it says in verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John... And understood that they were uneducated and untrained, right? They're uneducated, they're untrained, and they're trying to figure out, and it says right here, they were amazed. They're saying, man, how is this, who are these guys? How are they able to do these things? But then look what it says. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. There's your point right there. There's the power. Everything about it is being with Jesus. You can go to seminary, and this is not knocking seminary, but you can go and get educated. You can learn all that. You know, you can spend all your life on YouTube listening to really good quality material, lectures, sermons, books. You can do all of it, right? But if you're not spending time with Christ, if Christ is not empowering you, if you're not spending any time with Christ, it becomes dry. It be, it, it's worthless. It really is. It's worthless. It's without any power. Nothing's going to happen. It's just, I mean, that's why you have atheist professors at most, at most um, universities who are teaching the Bible. Most Bible classes, most, most, most Bible classes at secular universities, they're taught by atheists. They're taught by agnostics. They're taught by unbelievers, skeptics. It's very rare that you'll actually meet a believer who teaches the Bible. And you're like, man, how is that possible? Well, it's easy, right? I mean, it's just like us. You can read anything, but you don't, that doesn't necessarily mean you believe it. That doesn't necessarily mean that you believe that the, the author is, is Christ or anything like that, right? And so there's a, there's a big difference between, and that's, that's the secret here. So it's not, look, studying, hearing lectures and, and, and sermons and reading books and all those things, very good, very important, very healthy. But... That presupposes, that assumes that you are not only in Christ, but that you're continuing to learn Christ himself. You're spending time with Christ. Okay, so that's the first thing. They are intentionally spending time with Christ. Um, number two, though, now, what, let me stop here. Okay, think about the alternative. What does Adam do in the garden when he sins against God? What does he do? He runs from God. He hides from God. He's not with God. So even after he sins, we talked about, we saw this last week. God comes into the garden, the cool of the day. That's the spirit of God coming. And he wants Adam to come away from the tree, confess and be with the Lord. Confess his sins and be with the Lord, right? He doesn't do that. He hides. 
So really, those are your two options here. You can spend time, you can be with the Lord, or you can run from the Lord. Those who are in their sin, they run from the Lord. You see the statistic where it's like everyone, or I don't know about everyone, but you know, it's, it's, everyone's freaking out because 81% of Americans now believe in God. And you know, 10 years ago or 5 years ago, it was 87%. And now we, we should pull our hair out. We should, you know, the reality is, according to Romans 1, 100% of people believe in God. Everyone is without excuse. They all know that God exists. But now you have 19% of people who are suppressing that truth as opposed to 13% or whatever. The reality is this. So look, the thing is, is what they're doing is they are running from God. If you're outside of Christ, you suppress the truth about God. You run from God. You hide from God. If you're with Christ, don't we have as Christ people, don't we have the desire to, to spend time with God, to, to be with Christ? We're imperfect at it. We, we mess it up. We don't ever have enough time, it seems, right? But we desire that, and we should be trying to carve out time for that. Now, um, here's the second thing. Number two, they're called to speak about Him, to preach about Him, to proclaim Him. And you'll see this in chapter 6. Verses 7 through 13, this is exactly what they go and they do. They say, uh, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey, etc. Look down to, uh, look at verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So they're doing exactly what Christ has called them to do. But it takes a while. They don't go out right away. It takes a while. But you see what they're doing. What are they doing? They're extending what God, what Christ himself started when he comes to earth. Matthew 28, Eric mentioned it today as far as the Great Commission goes. Matthew 28, that's all this is. Matthew 28 is the extension of what Christ is telling them right here. When it says in verse uh, 14 that he sent them to send up, he sent them out to preach. Okay, when you go to Matthew, actually even the end of Mark, the end of Mark or Matthew or any place, every every gospel actually has a Great Commission passage. Um, But look what he says at the end of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Then you go to Matthew and it's talking about how Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he says, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, etc. Everything that happens post-Christ is an extension of what Christ begins on earth. That's all he's doing here. Why is Christ, you know, he's spending three years on earth. We've already seen how Christ is telling everybody, hey, don't go out and tell everybody what I'm doing here. Because if you go out, there's, it's already a powder keg. It's already about to blow. The authorities are upset. The demon possessed are crying out. It's, it's ready to, to be uncorked. And so Christ is trying to do some crowd control and say, listen, don't, don't go so fast yet. I still, have, I still have to train these guys. I still need some time with these guys before, I, before I'm crucified. I gotta, these guys got to learn from me, right? Before, before I'm crucified and I'm, and, I, and I'm raised from the dead I'm, I, and I ascend. I need some time first. There's a reason why it takes three years, because these men need to learn. But once Christ ascends, it doesn't stop. It continues. And here's where I was saying this is why it's relevant for us, okay? Because what the disciples began, what Christ began, and then what Christ commissioned the disciples to do is exactly what Christ continues to command us to do every single day with our lives. Think about it. Is there a reason why? I mean, think of this. And, and there's plenty of places to go to. There's, there's places in Acts where it talks about the disciples going around and they're talking about the, the gospel, sharing the gospel, things like that. Look, every one of us, we're called to go and do exactly what these disciples are doing. 
Now, we don't have the gift of doing these miracles that they're doing and, and someone touches our handkerchief and they're, they're cured or something. You know, that was a special moment. That was a particular season of time. Before they, had the, before they had the New Testament written down, God was working in that special type of revelation kind of way. Uh, but now that we have the scriptures, God does not work that way to an extent. Now, he still does miracles. He still heals people. But it's not necessarily on the spot through a certain person who has this gift of healing that can go around and just do everything he wants as far as these people who are sick okay but it is to say listen it is to say this okay the ultimate miracle is when somebody's converted how is somebody converted how does that take place it's not by god writing it in the sky with with an airplane or with his finger it is by people going out and sharing the gospel with their mouths or by showing them exposing people to the things of christ that's how people get converted faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of god and faith, this, this idea of hearing, so every one of us, going back to the idea of us being priests, that's what it's talking about. Every one of us, when we go into our spheres or our operations that God has, a pl- has placed us in, He's called us to preach Christ and to share Christ in those locations and expecting conversions. Man, we got to expect that. Think about it. There's going to be a day when the knowledge of the Lord is spread from sea to sea, every nation, every country. There, are, I'm telling you, and, and you see in Scripture that we serve a God who is going to save an abundant amount of people still to come it has not happened yet but it's happening i guarantee it if you look at, at the west again you're looking at statistics like 81 percent, man well then go you know go look at china you know china five years ago i don't and i'm just making this up but it's probably somewhere in the ballpark you know 15 percent are professing christians nowadays you five years later 40 percent Africa, 1905, in Africa there was, in 1905 there was something like 4 million Christians. Today there's 400 million Christians in Africa in the course of a century. And it's like this with most of these countries. Now the West is different. The West is in decline. But that doesn't mean God just stops working just because the West is in decline. The rest of the world is, is on fire for the Lord right now. And how is that happening? Well, it's by people going and spreading the message. That's how it's happening. And we're seeing this now. What I want to look at, actually, we have one other thing here, and then we're really going to look at this. Okay, the third thing that God calls them to do is cast out demons. Now, again, um, you know, can we, can we not do this? Um, you know, this, this, here's the thing. My view of, of demon possession is, for sure, it's still, it's still a real thing. There's no doubt about it. Um, and God does cast demons out. Through people praying for them, yes, um, things like that. Okay, that's a fact. But most of the time, when we're talking about the demonic realm in our day, you know what we're dealing with? We're talking about ideologies. We're talking about demonic ideologies, doctrines of demons. We're talking about false gospels. We're talking about false religions. We're talking about humanism, secularism. We're talking about um, macro-Darwinianism, all these things. These are the doctrines of demons that we are dealing with. Now, how do we... How do we how do we respond to those things? Well, in a sense, so what you see with the disciples here, what are they doing? Christ gives them the authority, the power to go and cast out demons, to prevail over demonic forces. Do we have the power by Christ, through Christ, to have power over the demonic forces? Absolutely. Every single time a person is converted, they're converted, they're snatched away from being a slave of Satan, and they're brought into the kingdom of God. Every single time someone's converted. Every single time your mind and my mind is renewed by the things of God, our minds, the darkness that was in our minds, is being becoming more and more filled with light. 
And same thing with ideology, same thing with all these things. That's why Paul talks about it as pulling down strongholds, pulling down these strongholds, these doctrines of demons, these ideologies. But you see that Christ is telling them, listen, I'm going to send you out to cast out demons. He has sent us out to um, act for him, to live for him, but to also oppose evil. I mean, is is it right to oppose evil? Here's what it seems like in our culture real fast. Okay, it seems like this. It seems like this, even uh, especially like amongst the Christian culture. It's like this. All right. So, you know, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to say anything, including oppose any kind of evil if it offends a lot of people. Right. Uh, Let's say with abortion, let's say with homosexuality, transgenderism, hot topic stuff. We know. Right. And it's not to necessarily intentionally bring that stuff up. But on any of those issues, it's kind of you kind of when you say it, you kind of you kind of whisper it. Right. You're like, man, abortion is that that's evil or, you know, homosexuality. I know that's wrong. We say that's a sin, man. But if I come out and say that they're going to slash my tires and burn down my house and all these. So I'm not going to say it. Right. Here's the thing, though. In reality, okay, it's not to say that one sin is over another. Granted. Right. So fornication is on the same level as homosexuality, no doubt, in a sense, although homosexuality is unnatural. Okay. Here's the thing, though. My point is, is this. What Christ is essentially telling them to do is, and and what we're called to do, is not just live in accordance with God's word. That's one thing. We are called to do that. To be light, to be salt. But we're also called to stand up against evil. Are we not? We're called to stand against evil, to oppose evil, to not just cave to it or not to say, hey, you do what you do and I'll do what I do and everything's fine. No, there's a there's a sense in which because why? Why? Because we love them. We love them enough to come and tell them the truth. If we don't say anything about it, who is if we don't tell them, hey, this is the wrong way. Who's going to go and tell them that? If we don't say, hey, unless you repent, unless you turn from your sin, you'll perish and you'll go to hell. And we don't want that. Right? Because we love you. We care for you. Therefore, turn from your ways. Not because we hate you, but because we love you. Not because we, you know, and here's the ultimate says we love God. This is a scandal to God. We don't want this. So that's why we do it. And so demonic possession is more than just a guy frothing from the mouth and his eyes in the back of his head and he can't, you know, he's got like the shakes. No, this is something that's much more subtle usually. Okay, so here's the thing what I want to do with these disciples. Now look at these names, okay? Look at these names. You got you have um, you have Simon, James, and John. You have Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. Now every one of these men, they're flesh and blood. And I think we forget that sometimes. Anyone in the scriptures, in my mind, I, I tend to hold up as some kind of, not certainly not an idol, but you know, almost like this person who I know he existed, but it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that he actually walked on earth. Same thing with Christ, that he actually breathed the very air that I breathe in. The moon that you see at night is the exact same moon that Christ would have laid his eyes on at night. The disciples themselves were breathing in this. You know, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. One of the ways that helps me to better appreciate these men and the fact that they were flesh and blood is this. What did they do after Christ ascended? Once Christ tells them to go out into all the world and make disciples, what's the rest of their life like? Now, you've probably heard before that, you know, when Christ is crucified, they all scatter, they run, they're terrified because they don't want to get in trouble too. But then when Christ appears to them in the resurrected flesh, something changes within them. There's a spark that happens and now they're ready to go. 
And here's the thing, okay? So I'm going to give you a list of their ministries, where they ministered, and how they died. Every one of these, you can find it. And we we're talking to William earlier about how you can find this information. There's, there's the disciples of these guys. So, the, so Peter had disciples. John had disciples. James had disciples. And those disciples wrote down what happened to their lives, how it ended for them. In fact, we have, we have what happened to Mark, the guy who wrote this gospel. And I'll share that with you. Okay, so um, quickly, I'm going to go through here. But it, it, it should stimulate us, especially on Father's Day. You know, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, do you got a Father's Day sermon? It's like, every time you preach, you should have a sermon for fathers, right? And a sermon for mothers, and a sermon for the children. So, so I don't, this should pump you up as a father, as a man. You know, these guys are masculine men. They're fishermen, yes. They had rough hands, yes. But at the same time, here's the thing. They're also like us. They're not super apostles. These are not special men. These are not quote-unquote special men. They really aren't. The only thing that made them special is that they had the Holy Spirit working in them. They were afraid. They made mistakes. They, we have more Bible knowledge probably than a lot of, they did, a lot of uh, them. Okay, so here's, here's what happened. So Simon, this is Peter. Simon was, uh, he ministered basically in that whole area, Rome, Judea, but he was crucified upside down. Y'all probably heard the story, right? He's in Rome and, and he's been sentenced because he's not a Roman citizen. He's, he's to be crucified. Paul, on the other hand, was a Roman, uh, Roman citizen, so they just beheaded Paul. Peter is, uh, Peter is not, so he's, cru- he's going to be crucified. Supposedly says, you know what, I'm not worthy to die like my master, so they crucify him upside down. Okay, the second guy here is John. Now, John eventually went to Ephesus, and he's the only disciple who would die by a natural death, natural cause. He's the only one. And even then, though, it's not like he lived a life of ease. Okay, because he goes to Ephesus. He's the bishop there. He takes care of Mary in his home until she dies. So that's the mother of Jesus. He's eventually exiled to Patmos, which is where, of course, he writes the book of Revelation. And at one point in his life, he's cast into boiling oil in, in, uh, in Rome, and he escapes somehow. And then eventually, of course, he he dies a natural death. Now, James, this is not the guy who wrote the book of James. This is James, the brother of John. You can actually find out what happened to James in Acts chapter 12. He's the second martyr that you see in the book of Acts. The first one you see is Stephen. The second one is James. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. It says, um, James, the brother of John, was put to death with a sword by Herod. Okay, and he ministered mainly in Judea. Now, Andrew went to all the way up to modern-day Russia. So think of this. I mean, if you look at a map, it'd be great to, you know, have a look at a map and see how far modern day for us, modern day Russia is. So he goes up north with the gospel. And at that time, Russia was known as the land of the man eaters. And so I don't know if that's a reference to cannibalism or what, but that's you thinking about these guys, right? This is doubting Thomas. Who's like, you know what? I'm not believing this, that Christ rose from the dead. You got to be out. You're kidding. You're out of your mind. But then once he sees the resurrected Christ, now he's like, you know what? I want to go to the land of the man-eaters with this gospel. And what happens to Thomas? Well, he's, or excuse me, uh, I was saying Thomas the whole time. Thomas has a story too. This is Andrew. Uh, He was crucified though. Andrew, eventually he's crucified. Um, Philip went to North Africa and Asia Minor. And then he converted the wife of a proconsul there, who's like the governor's wife. And because of that, the proconsul had him crucified in stone. Bartholomew went to India with Thomas. So think of that, India, Jerusalem to India with the gospel. He also went to Ethiopia, Arabia, and Armenia. He translated the gospel of Matthew into the Indian language which is really nice. And then uh, eventually they beat him with clubs, then crucify him, and then behead him. And I don't know what order. Um, Matthew, 
course, Matthew is a gospel writer. He goes to Persia and Ethiopia. He sees mass conversions under his ministry. And so the king orders him to be stabbed to death with spears. Thomas, this is Doubting Thomas, he goes to India. So Thomas goes to India and he's slain with darts by four soldiers. So again, this is the man who's doubting Christ. But then he came to his senses once he sees Christ, goes to India, slain. James of Alphaeus, he goes to Syria. He's stoned and clubbed to death because of his faith. Thaddeus goes to Edessa and Persia. He's crucified. Simon the Zealot, he goes to Persia and he's killed after refusing to worship the sun god in Persia. And then lastly, the gospel writer Mark, he's not mentioned in here, but he was a companion of Peter as we saw. And what happened to him? Well, he was eventually a missionary to Alexandria and Egypt. And then um, he was caught by the authorities there for preaching the gospel. And they draw him with ropes into a fire and leave him there and he's burned to death. And we remember, of course... Why the Gospel of Mark is written. It's written to Christians in Rome who are suffering persecution. Why am I telling you all this? Because this is the group that starts out this way on this mountainside. Their entire lives are about to be turned upside down. These guys are coming out of pretty, I'm sure, pretty peaceful situations. They're fishermen. I'm, you know, I'm sure they're hard workers. But at the same time, their life is going to be turned upside down. And, and here's the thing, though. When, when we're looking at our lives... When we come to Christ, you have to realize that our lives, when you come to Christ, our life potentially is going to be turned upside down. I'm saying potentially, in a sense it is, spiritually, right? Our lives are turned upside down. We go from hating God to loving God. We go from loving sin to hating sin. We are made new creations. Our desires change. Our inclinations change. The things that we do in our spare time, they change. The ways that we treat our family, everything changes. So in that sense, it's a turning upside down of our entire life. But also potentially, as far as physically, as far as the things, especially in our culture, you know, who knows that tomorrow your boss doesn't come out and say, hey, you know what, if you're a Christian, then either you have to renounce your faith or get lost or something. You know, and I know these are at least right now, they're exaggerated, but on another, in another level, they're not. You have friends, no doubt, who are, hey, if, if you're serious about your faith, they'll cut you off. I guarantee it. Right? Your family, they will cut you off if you're serious about it. Now, again, it's not to say you have to go in there like a bull in a china shop and just throw things around. No, but it's to say, hey, if you take a stand and you're like, you know what? I don't want to go to my gay cousin's wedding. I don't think that's correct. What's going to happen? Right? I don't want to stand up for this sin or I don't, I don't think that's correct. Or, or, you know, I want to live my life this way because I think it's in conformity with Scripture. And you know, right? You know that there are things in our life that we're called to do, just like these men were called to do, that in a sense it distinguishes us from being, you know what, there's two types of Christians. There's the one who are content to be in the crowd. Let's think about Christ. He's got a lot of people around him right now. There's people who are content to be in the crowd. They never commit to Christ. They see what he does. They hear what he says. They might have some inkling of what he's talking about in the scripture, right? But did they ever commit to him? When you commit to Christ, your life changes. By, by necessity, your life has to change once you commit to him. So do you live for Christ? That's really where the rubber meets the road. Do you stand against evil? Not just in society, but in our own lives. You know, are we fighting against the sin that's in us, in our lives, that's wreaking havoc in our flesh even now on this side of Christ? We're wrestling against that. Or does it not even bother you? Right? That's the kind of stuff that we're looking at. And these are factors, whether or not what distinguishes you between being, are you a true follower or are you one of these people who are in the crowds? Look, um, the other thing is this. Look. 
you have, you have people who no doubt would say, I believe in Christ, right? I believe in Christ. But then you have people who are like these apostles. Now think about this. The apostles are also saying, I believe in Christ. Okay, at, at some point though, there's a difference, is there not, between, between these two people. One person says, I believe in Christ. The other person says, I also believe in Christ. But one person never commits to Christ. The other person sells out for Christ, right? So it's like this, okay? It's not to say that your faith is dependent upon whether or not you sell out for Christ. But it's to say that faith in Christ, if there is faith in this Messiah, if there's this faith in Christ, what's going to happen is he's going to call you, right? And once you're called, you're going to realize my life is different. It's changed. I am now committed to something that's greater than myself. I'm committed to Christ. That's first. I am committed to Christ. I'm committed to what he says in his word. I'm committed. Whatever he says, I want to do it. Whatever he says not to do, I don't want to do it. I'm going to fight against that. And again, it's not to say your salvation is dependent upon how much you perfect this or progress this. Not at all. It's to say that in Christ, he's going to make you a new creation that is going to give you somewhat of this drive that these apostles had. That we're going to see them carry out. Now, again, these are not super apostles. We're going to see this as we go through the Gospel of Mark. These guys make mistakes left and right. These guys have moments of unbelief. They're doubtful. They're clumsy. They are not, they are not the, we look at this and we should be able to see ourselves in every one of these guys as we go through this. But it's to say, you know what they wanted though? After all of their stumblings, after all their failings, you know what caused them to be different? They just wanted to be with Christ. They wanted to be with Christ. Remember Peter? He says, where else are we going to go? I mean, we're not very good at this. We mess up every week. But you know what? Where else are we going to go? Jesus? And so they cling to him. They stick with him. And over time, through their lives, look how God has worked in them. So that you have guys going to India and Russia. And not even that. Judea. You have this whole area turned upside down for the sake of Christ. You have people now. Here we are in Clovis. Right? This is the way that God's kingdom advances on earth through you. By God's grace through you and through me because of what God does through us. And so when he calls these disciples, know that this is an extension of Christ's work on earth. And then once the disciples die, well, there's others and there's others after them and there's others after them. And now here we are today and there'll be others after us. And so our job is to take the baton and continue this race that has started way back here and really started all the way back with Abraham. Take this baton and know that you're part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are running a race beneath a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And because of Christ's power, we're going we're gonna to be victorious. So don't quit. Whatever's behind you, leave it behind you and move forward. Go forward with it. Okay, let's pray. Our, uh, our Christ, we thank you that we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we know that apart from Apart from you, Lord, we are clumsy. We, we do make mistakes every moment, every thought. Lord, we thank you that this work of your kingdom advancing on earth is, is certainly that. It's your work, O oh God. And, and the fact that we're all here today opening your word is a living testimony of the power of the gospel. That you've caused it to spread um, beyond the, the boundaries of Judea and that that area in the Middle East, we thank you that this gospel has gone forth throughout all the world now, and that today there's people throughout this world in, in so many different languages and tongues and 
uh, different different backgrounds and interests and cultures and all these things, Lord, but they're praising the one true Christ. And we thank you for that, God. Thank you that this is not an isolated thing, that it's not just us, but that we are we are part of a uh, the church militant and the church triumphant. We thank you, O oh God. We thank you that on this earth, this is the church militant, and we do have foes, and we have principalities and powers that we're at war against spiritually. We pray for strength, O oh God, to, to overcome these enemies, to overcome these obstacles, and to plant a stake in the ground for Christ. And Lord, we also thank you, O oh God, that the church triumphant is is ahead of us, and we know that there will be a day when there won't be any striving. There will be no more striving against sin. There will be no more tears. There will be no more fighting this this warfare with the world and the flesh and the devil. But we do thank you that Christ reigns today, that he's already victorious. Strengthen us, O oh God. Strengthen your people. Bless this church. God, we pray that you would bless uh, bless Westminster. Bless their church as well. We pray that you would bless all the churches in this area and that there would be a beacon of light that goes forth and, and demolishes the stronghold that's on this city. And we thank you again, O oh God, that we can trust in your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.